0: Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read just one or two verses. It's on page 594 in the Bible. You'll soon be able to get there without thinking. I'm going to read verses 16 to 17 of Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just or the righteous shall live by faith now and at last we've come to this what I would call the book of books it's found within the pages of the New Testament of course for those of us that have been here for any length of time you will notice that we've been all around it we've looked at John we've been into Acts we've been into Ephesians Colossians Hebrews we've been back in the Psalms we've been with Elijah we've been with all these different places But all the time, this little gem of a book has been in to be got at. And um, it's a massive undertaking that we will be uh, going through for quite a number of years, I would have thought. And um, I'm sure that the Lord is going to bless us through it and use us through it. You know, I feel tonight Like if we come to base camp at the foot of Everest and uh, the task ahead is both exhilarating and daunting at the same time. Now then this book of Romans as you all know has changed lives in so many different ways. Set nations on different courses. In fact this nation is the nation it is today simply because of the book of Romans. Yesterday you know the Queen broke the record. We had Wayne breaking the record uh, this week and we had Elizabeth breaking the record this week. Yesterday was perhaps a scene of great celebration looking at the the Queen and seeing how she has reigned over us for the last 60 odd years or however much it is if the book of Romans had never been written the Queen would never have reigned for one day let alone 63 years it's because of the book of Romans that we averted what happened in France uh, the French Revolution which of course destroyed the monarchy uh, in many ways and that would have happened year simply because of the Book of Romans. That's how powerful this book actually is. It has transformed the spiritual landscape on so many occasions in so many different nations. I've just got four people that will testify of the power of the Book of Romans. Saint Augustine, who is probably the father of the church uh, in many ways. His shadow has loomed large over the church since the 4th century uh, AD. He was converted by reading just a few verses of the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought that all the the transforming power uh, of the gospel would have come at him from chapters 3 to chapter 8. But it was chapter 13 that he read And he found the Lord as his saviour. And he has influenced. Perhaps you don't know how much influence he's had upon the church. But he was a massive influence on the church in the early years. Of course, we all know this guy. Martin Luther. Martin Luther, of course, studying the writings of Augustine, came to an understanding of the faith. You know, and it's the 16th verse, the verse that I read to us tonight. The, first, the 16th verse of the very first chapter of Romans spoke volumes to his heart as he thought and meditated upon that great phrase the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith. And I can tell you that we can be so grateful that Luther had that revealed to him when he did because of course we know that 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 man, the transformation of that man, brought with it the Great Reformation, which is the greatest awakening that this world has ever seen since the days of the Apostles. Of course, we got at the top there. We all know John Bunyan, and John Bunyan was in Bedford Jail for his faith, and he was reading the Book of Romans and was so caught up by all of its themes that he penned Pilgrim's Progress. And we know the influence that that has had on Christians ever since that moment where people, Christians, are able to relate to the way that we live in the world that we do. And then last of all, uh, for now, we have my favorite uh, history character, and that is John Wesley. And John Wesley, again, Uh, listening one day to Luther's commentary on the book of Romans says he found his own heart strangely warmed and he felt that his sins had been forgiven. And out of that great experience of Luther came the evangelical awakening of the 18th century which actually saved our country from civil war. So we can see that this book Is a very powerful book. It's a powerful tool that God has actually given to us. All these men, and there are many more besides, transformed by the gospel according to Romans and in turn transformed the society that they belong to. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think that when Martin Luther read that 16th verse of chapter 1. That he thought to himself that this is going to change me and the whole Protestant Reformation is going to spark off because of me. Do you think he thought that? Or do you think that John Wesley, you know we know the exact moment when John Wesley came to faith. He came to faith at quarter to nine in the evening on May the 24th 1738. He must have been late for the meeting because he was standing in the porch when he read it. So, those people have come late, you stand in the porch, keep your ear out for what's being said because it might change your life. It might not, but it might. And that's what happened to him. Now, do you think that when he felt his heart strangely warmed, did he think that he expected that some 277 years later there would be a group of people in Emmanuel Christian Fellowship that would be talking of the massive influence and the ongoing influence that his conversion would bring upon the nation around us. Do you think that these two men had any idea that God was going to use them in such a way? That he would spark off the Reformation and that he would spark off the um, the greatest of awakenings. Do you think that? Because I don't. I don't. I think they were just normal people who had a personal uh, relationship or a personal call to faith from God. They were personal people, just normal everyday people who had been transformed by the message of the gospel. They were normal people whom God had used to replicate that revelation that had happened in their hearts and in their minds to the nation that was around and about them. Now we might be sitting here in this meeting tonight, looking at those four men, Perhaps some of them you've never heard of. Perhaps in August that you've never thought of. Perhaps John Bunyan very rarely comes into your conversation. Probably never spoke about him in work today or wherever you been. Martin Luther, John Westy. But we are here tonight and we are looking at these men and perhaps with great admiration of these exceptional giants of the faith who yesterday year, made such an impact on our society and at the same time not really thinking or expecting anything like that to happen to us isn't that a shame that we look at them and think boy what did God do for them boy what did God do through them because of them and yet at the same time Not expecting anything like that to happen to us. See, our attitude is that we are not important enough. We are not spiritual enough. You know, if God is going to move today, then He's bound to use someone a little further up the spiritual ladder than us. Well, I tell you that we are sitting in this meeting tonight in the same way as Martin Luther sat in his, in John Wesley sat in his, in... Augustine sat in his and Bunyan, that perhaps we're not the same as Bunyan because he was in a prison cell. But we are being, going to be exposed to the most powerful set of literature that this world has ever known. And I would suggest to you that you become, and I become, expectant of what God is going to do through this book. Expectant that he is going to change us. He's going to transform us. That he's going to bring us into a, a new sort of avenue of relationship with him. A new avenue of service to him. That we won't be the same as we go through this book. That we will feel our hearts strangely warmed. That we will have the the, uh, the authority and the boldness to preach the gospel just like Paul did. Not being ashamed of the gospel knowing and coming to a, a fresh realization that it is the power of God to the salvation of all who believe. You know, over the last decade or so, the gospel has been under attack that the, this vital message that we have is being ridiculed and vilified left, right and center and perhaps we, even we, in the Emmanuel Christian Fellowship could be ashamed of the gospel of God but you know when we come to this part of the scripture and we see what Paul has written for us and not only what he has written but the way that he has lived his life as he writes it I would hope and pray that it would spark off something in us that would rekindle that desire to preach the gospel to those who are still as yet unsaved those who are, un- uh, that are still unbelievers in the world that we belong to just like Martin Luther. Who was only concerned for himself at the time. He was burdened with sin. And he couldn't get no peace because he tried his best. He was a priest or a, a monk and he tried his best to satisfy the righteousness of God. And he couldn't do it. So he wanted salvation. He wanted satisfaction. He wanted peace. And in finding peace, God sent him on a journey that you and I are a part of. John Wesley John Wesley had just come back from being a missionary to the Indians in North America and realized that he wasn't saved himself. And reluctantly he went to a meeting in Aldersgate Road in London and he heard this message and he found salvation and through him others, thousands, even millions of people have actually come to know the Lord. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to the saving of those who believe, and these men were spurred on to know that and understand it and live in the light of it. You know, and if only that could happen to us here in this gathering today, that we would be spurred on to believe that the gospel is man's only hope, is society's only hope. Then that would be an amazing thing for us to achieve. Hold on to your hearts because you don't know what is around the spiritual corner for those who are exposed to this dynamite that is the epistle of Paul to the Romans now following Luther's epiphany this moment that he found salvation through faith as he read verse 16 we can see the complete overview of the whole book before our very eyes listen to what it says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes this is verse 16 we are in the very sort of uh, foothills of the book it hasn't gone anywhere yet and do you know that the word gospel has been used four times already by this time, by this part of the book. The gospel has been used mentioned four times and so it gives us an idea, some idea of what Romans is all about. It's all about the gospel. Here it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It was very strange to me, and I don't know why this is, Why the book of Romans is not called the gospel according to Paul? Some people have called it the fifth gospel. But why did Paul bother to write a gospel in the first place? Why on earth did he bother to give us another book about the gospel? You know, there's been uh, four already. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Didn't he think that they did a good enough job by themselves didn't he, didn't he realize that three of them, if we take Mark, Mark's gospel as being the sort of the outworking of Peter's experience, didn't he know that three of them were eyewitnesses of Christ? Who spent every moment of the three and a half years that he was ministering with him? What would Paul have to offer? How could he improve on this dynamic witness that was already there? How could he think that they had failed in their endeavor to bring the true gospel to the world? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all named the gospel according to. The gospel according to. The gospel according to. Could Paul improve on such a dynamic witness to the gospel of Christ? This is the question I'd like us to think about for a few moments tonight. You know, and at this point, I would like to remind you, and especially those who uh, come to this place on a Sunday morning, remind you of the earlier studies in one of those Gospels that we went through. The Gospel according to John. Because in the Gospel according to John, we see Jesus dismantling the old covenant bit by bit. But listen to these words Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Here he is talking, John the Baptist talking to Jews who were used to the phrase the Lamb of God In fact, thousands if not millions of lambs had been slain on Jewish altars over 1,400 years of its history and you was John pointing to not the lambs, but the Lamb, the Lamb of God. You know, are in the first chapter of the book of John, Christ is about to replace the whole of the sacrificial system of the old covenant with His once and for all sacrifice upon the cross. The old covenant dismantled, bit. By bit. First of all, it's the sacrificial system. And then, secondly, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. You know and then are the trappings of the Jewish religion and especially the temple. You see, the whole of the Jewish religion revolved around the temple, the dwelling place of God. How can man have his sin <laughs> washed away? Is it through the blood of bulls and goats? Well, Hebrews tells us no. It's through the blood of Christ. He's changed. He's done away with the sacrificial system. How does a man get into the presence of God? Is it through entering into the temple and going through all the rites and ceremonies? No, it's by being in Christ Jesus. So by destroying the temple in the way that he suggests and him... Being raised from the dead. It's those who are in Christ Jesus who now have the privilege and the pleasure of being in the presence of God. In Christ Jesus. And thirdly, what sign? And this is the Pharisees, the personnel of the old covenant. The, the scribes and the Pharisees. They asked this question. Notice they didn't ask. Why are you doing these things? You just upturned the tables. Why are you doing these things? Why are you cleansing the temple? They knew why he was doing it. They wanted to know what sign, what authority he had to do it. You see, the Messiah would come and cleanse the temple. And here is Jesus cleansing the temple. They didn't ask why are you doing this? He said they say, On what authority are you doing this? You know what in that one sentence the Pharisees realized that they, the personnel of the Old Covenant, were being replaced by Jesus, the eternal High Priest. You know, we went through all that in the book of of Hebrews. You know, and the process of Christ dismantling the Old Covenant didn't come to an end until the 20th chapter of John now the 20th chapter of John is the resurrection chapter it's the day when Jesus burst forth from the dead you know having dealt with our sins in his sacrifice upon the cross uh, two or three days earlier now he raises he's raised up to prove that his sacrifice was satisfactory to God was complete and now he is able to say receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And it's at that point, And not a minute before. But it's at that point. When Jesus said to his disciples. Receive the Holy Spirit. That the old covenant. Gives way completely. To the glorious new covenant. And you and I are. A part of the new covenant. The new testament. Because now Christ has done away. With the old Covenant. It's the moment that everything in biblical revelation has been working up to. The day when God could indwell His people by His Spirit. That's the most amazing moment that, uh, that we could ever think of. God's plan of salvation has come to fruition. It's taken 1400 years. Millions of lambs and bulls and goats have been slain. <laughs> Eighty or so priests, high priests, have taken control of this covenant people. And now, Jesus Christ has replaced it all with Himself. With Himself as the Lamb of God slain for the, for the sins of the world. With Himself as the means of coming into the presence of God. With Himself as the one who was brought in this new covenant by bringing to people the gift of the Holy Spirit you know Jeremiah Jeremiah talks about the new covenant as being the Lord our righteousness you know we sing to him it's not by works of righteousness that we have done but according to your mercy you've saved us and I want to thank God you know one of the songs said tonight we worship you because you are our righteousness you know, we wouldn't be nowhere at all in the economy of God if God wasn't our our righteousness. If Christ wasn't our righteousness. I thank God that he didn't. I, I got a, a, a commentary at home and I had it, I would say, for 30 years. And i have never ever agreed with the title of it. It's a commentary on Romans and probably I will, I will find as we go through the... Uh, the study of Romans, that there will be wonderful things in there. But the title always gets me. The title is this, How God Makes Bad Men Good. And you know, God hasn't made bad men good. He hasn't made me good. He hasn't made me righteous. Otherwise, I'd have to tell him you failed. Because in my own self, I'm still not as righteous as I should be. I'm not even as righteous as I could be. And you can say the same. There is no righteousness in us. You see, it's not that God has made bad men good. But God has clothed us with His righteousness. He's clothed us with His righteousness. Righteousness, And that's what this whole book of Romans is about. How a man can stand in the presence of God. The only way is that if he is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. That's how Jeremiah describes for us the, the new covenant you know under Ezekiel again we know the the verses from Ezekiel that would say that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of you out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you I cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments to do them the indwelling of the spirit so the, the new covenant what's it about? it's about us being clothed in Christ's righteousness, and us being filled with God, that couldn't have happened in the Old Testament. It could only have happened at, since Calvary and since the resurrection. You no, know, I said when we looked at these studies in in John chapter chapter one, it was it was 2008 uh, when we were looking at it. As John was writing, or as John was witnessing the scene that was before him, as he looked at Jesus uh, going through his ministry, I said then that he had spotted a radical change taking place through these events. He saw the fulfillment of the Old Testament being, uh, taking place before his very eyes. And that must have been amazing. He knew his Old Testament. He thought, there's something happening. There's something happening. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not what the Old Testament says. But that's what the Old Testament is looking for. And here it is. Can you imagine the excitement that John must have been feeling as he realized that this person that had come to be his friend was the one who was going to be his savior? and dismantle all that that went before and give him a hope that would take him into eternity. He he saw the fulfillment of the old taking place before his eyes. He watched a shadow. And when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we talk about types and shadows. But he saw the shadows of the Old Testament solidify into the substance of Christ he's looking at Jesus. And he's looking at the lambs. And he's looking at the tabernacle. And he's thinking all of that is pointing to him. You know, he must have been bouncing. When he came to understand. That everything that he learned. And understood from the past. Has now come into fruition. Through this person that is standing by him. You no, know, he's witnessing. Types transforming into antitypes. It's not the temple anymore. It's not the tabernacle anymore. It's not the lamb anymore. It's Jesus. It's Jesus now. You know, and especially when the veil of the temple ran re- into, uh, when he was on the cross, that must have been an amazing moment for people like John, who is beginning to understand that in his lifetime, God was doing something mind-blowing He's observing the symbolic of the Old Testament being overcome by the reality of Christ. The new covenant is here. You know, that's what can be written over last, that last chapter of the book of John. The new covenant is here. And do you know that's good news? And we know that the word good news is the word Gospel. So when we put all that into the book of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke we can say that's the gospel that's the good news but you see it didn't complete until right at the very end of the gospels it's in Matthew uh, it's in the later chapters of Matthew the later chapters of Mark the later chapters of Luke and the later chapters of John it comes at the very end when the new covenant is realized and tells me that up until the resurrection and I want you to understand this because I think it's important in the context of the book of Romans it tells me that the new covenant is not realized until the end of the book which tells me the gospels and I've said this before too are really Old Testament documents they always deal in with the Old Testament, right up until the resurrection. And when the resurrection comes, it catapults us into the new covenant. So everything in these Gospels it's important. The important is important. They're important, it's where Jesus lived and we see a um, the transcript of his life and his death and his resurrection. So they are important books for us, but they don't tell us an awful lot. About ourselves. They don't tell us, we'd be hard pressed to define the gospel from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why did God send Jesus? But it doesn't really tell us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why the cross? It doesn't really tell us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why the shedding of the blood it doesn't really tell us in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. How should we respond? Doesn't really tell us. What has God achieved through this display of love and righteousness? Doesn't really tell us in the Gospels. We need something else. We need an explanation of what Christ has actually achieved. How is faith born? How is faith born? None of these questions are addressed in the so-called Gospels and therefore it is to this glorious book of Romans that we must turn in order to see the glory of this salvation plan to understand its implications to embrace its wonderful consequences to me if you are serious and if I'm serious about the Gospel and if I'm serious about my walk with God. And if I'm serious about being not only transformed, but a transformer of others, then I've got to move on. I've got to move on from the historical narrative of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And I've got to embrace the sublime heights of the book of Romans. This is an explanation of the gospel. This answers the question that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pose. Why the cross? Why the blood? How do we benefit? How do we react? How do we move into what God has for us? It's revealed to us in the book of Romans. And that's where he said that this is the the gem of the New Testament. In fact, it's the gem of literature throughout history, worldwide. And once we understand this book, I believe we will understand more of God, more of the sacrifice that He made for us, more of the blessings of salvation, and our walk will be more powerful and dynamic than it has ever been before. That's why Paul wrote this book. And that's why I would call it the gospel according to Paul. Now as we move on, we're going to look, just look at one word from our first verse tonight. The first verse. Let's just look at the first verse. Let's go back to the scriptures. You see what it says. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to the gospel. God. That's the first mention of the word gospel. But the word that I want us to look at just for the last few moments of our time together is the word Paul. Paul. It's quite obvious that we want to know not only why he wrote it, but we want to know who actually wrote the book of Paul. Why Paul? Why Paul why not Matthew why not Peter why not James or John they were with him all the time he showed them everything that he ever did especially Peter, James and John no they were in the room with Julius' daughter, they were on the mountain of transfiguration everywhere Jesus went they went So why on earth has God seemingly jumped over the obvious candidates to write this treatise on the gospel of God and jumped to Paul? What the moment of Christ's earthly ministry was antagonistic to him? We know that he persecuted the church, killing people in the name of God, killing people who worship the name of Christ. Why does God not choose them and choose him. you want know, to gain it is the divide between the old and the new covenant that determines who God would choose to write this universal gospel you'll notice in the in the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that Jesus chose twelve disciples twelve disciples who were Jewish to the very core probably neither of the twelve had ever ventured outside the confines of Israel once in their lives they were Jews born and bred and they were insular in their thinking it was all about their Jewishness now it's interesting if we go back to our verse 16 again for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then I can add a bit to what I did last time, for the Jew first, and also for the Greeks. Now then we know don't we, that Jesus came to the Jews. He didn't come to the world. He came to the Jews. And when he's formed this band of people, he chose Jews. Because he'd come to the Jews. And in fact, when a Phoenician woman asked him for a blessing, he told her no. He told her no. I'm not going to give a dog a blessing. Can you imagine what the politically correct brigade would have said to Jesus on that day? How dare you call this woman a dog but he didn't he called it a dog we don't give the children's food to the dogs and you see what he said he says I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel now I know we know that in the story her faith endeared Christ to her but you see the, the principle of the matter is there he came for the Jews He chose Jewish men to be his disciples. And all he wanted to do was minister to the Jews. You know, his life and his ministry was confined to the people of the old covenant. But that verse tells us that it was to the Jews first. And then it was also to the Gentiles. And so, For the gospel which is rooted in the cradle of judaism to be relevant to us you see that wouldn't have been relevant to us we know nothing about lambs being slain or not does we didn't know nothing about the ten commandments we didn't know nothing about the sacrificial system the, the high priesthood the tabernacle that's nothing to do with us we are not jews we know nothing about the passover you know, when there's people came outside our gate a couple of years ago and told us we should be celebrating the Passover, what a load of nonsense. Jews celebrate the Passover. Jews celebrate um, the gift, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jews celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Nothing at all to do with me. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I don't celebrate any of those things. And I don't have to celebrate any of those things. This whole Judaism thing is of no relevance to me whatsoever. And that's how it would have stayed. That's how it would have been. From From then right up until now, it would have been a Judaistic religion. That was powerful over there, but had nothing at all to say to me. But for... The gospel to be relevant to me. God has to choose a man. A man not just from the Jews, but a man from both worlds. If he's going to reach out into the world, he has to have someone who is a Jew with his foot in the Jewish camp, and someone who is a Roman or a Gentile with his foot in the Gentile camp. And that's what he needs. That's what he needs. So that he could become a bridge between them and us. Between both worlds. Enter Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Why should we consider Saul of Tarsus? Well, because he's a Jew who lived in a Gentile city. Who was born in a Gentile city. He was a pure Jew who was raised the bar of Judaism. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond all measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was the mastermind of his day. You know, well, it's a fact that is acknowledged even in society today. In in the 1940s, the Secular Society in London put on a series of lectures. and the, the the name of the series of lectures was the Masterminds of the Ages. And who do you think popped up as one of the Masterminds of the Ages? It was Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. He was a mastermind. He was an amazing man. He had gifts poured out in every pool uh, in his body. The Apostle Paul was dealt with in those lectures. Why? Because he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He, he, I suppose we could say his grades were higher than anyone else's. He transformed Judaism and took it on to another level. Then, of course, it tells us this is his boast. This is his boast. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was a pure Jew. He was a pure Jew. And therefore, He was able to understand the concepts of God's revelation to his covenant people. He knew the Old Testament backwards. He knew every corner, every implication, everything that he needed to know about the scriptures, he knew. But then, this is one good thing, but we could say that about Matthew. We could say it about John. We could say it about uh, all the ones that uh, were chosen by God, by Christ, to be his disciples. But of course, Paul was something different. Paul, in his own words, tells us that he was a citizen of Rome. A citizen of Rome. Something that he was really proud of. A Jew being proud to be a Roman. Now, there's not many of them about. There's not many of them about today. They are fair and far between. In fact, he's the only one that I know of. A Jew. Proud to be a Roman. And we know, don't we, that when Paul was first saved, his ministry was to the Jews. Why? He loves the Jews. He's a Jew. A hard born and bred a Jew. Will always be a Jew. And he went out from and Jesus said, go preach. He went and preached to the Jews. Of course he did. And if you notice, every time he went to a different city, he went to the synagogue. Why? Because that's where the Jews were. He left the Jews. Until one moment. When it says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, You are blood, be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And from that moment on, Paul became an apostle to the Gentiles. As we will see, if you stick with me till chapter 9, and I hope you do, I hope you stick with me till chapter 9, Paul never lost his love for his people, chapter 9 is a lament that his people were still in darkness his own people, the Jews were still blinded to the gospel so he had, he had both he left the both worlds you know and in Acts chapter 22 this is what it says I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in the city at the feet of Gamelia, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you are all today. He was a Jew, but he loved the Gentiles. He was unique. He was unique. In Tarsus. Now, just a word about Tarsus. He was a town that was famous for its philosophers. Remember when he saw the, the, the inscription to the unknown God and he named a number of the philosophers that had brought all this philosophy to Athens. He knew them because he'd come from the city that they came from. It was a city that was famous for its philosophers, its university, its history, its culture, and its engineering achievements. Tarsus was an amazing city. And who was born there? Well, luckily, Paul. Paul was born there. You know, and in order for Christianity, in order that it might go out into all the world, a unique person was necessary. And Paul was that person. Now you know, we can thank God for an awful lot of things. But tonight we're going to thank God that Paul never insisted. You Nobody know, we told him in Galatians that God had separated him from his mother's womb. So we're thanking God, really. We're thanking God that he prepared a person, a normal human being, prepared him in the womb of his mother, took him to Tarsus, gave him a love for the Jews, in order that he could bring these two worlds together. In Christ. Because if the, uh, if, in order Christianity might go out into the world, a unique person was necessary. You, uniquely, was the man of two worlds. The man who Jewish to the last fiber of his being, but also the man who knew the Romans and the Greeks as few, if any other Jew, would understand. Here indeed was the man prepared by God to be the bridge between the two worlds and be the bridge, and this is the lovely bit, the bridge by which Gentiles could cross over, not into Judaism, but into Christ. If he hadn't existed, we <coughs> wouldn't be here tonight. Now forget about the Queen. If and John Wesley hadn't been saved on that night, the Queen wouldn't have reigned for 63 years that would be a calamity but more of a calamity That if Saul of Tarsus Paul the Apostle hadn't been born when he did if God hadn't prepared him in the womb if he hadn't grown up to be who he was if he hadn't penned these words that we have before us then we would not be in this place tonight we would be as far away from God as it is possible to be. But because of his work, his divine work that God did through him, you and I can rejoice in the fact that we are justified by faith, that the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon us and that his spirit dwells within us. You know, if God has gone to such lengths to get this book written, and if you think about it, this book could never have been written any other way. If God has gone to such lengths to get this book written, then it behoves us to present ourselves to its study, to really understand its themes, and really take on board what God so obviously wants us to know. You wonder know, uh, as we go through our time on a Thursday night, I pray that we will be open to the Spirit. And that we would be those that would want to hear, want to understand, want to learn, and yes, want to be transformed by its <coughs> message. And we will be transformed by its message, one way or another. So my prayer is that you will have the desire to listen to God's word being expounded from this place. And I would pray that you would pray for me. That God would give me the insight into the main teachings of this book so that together we will move on in Him and become more equipped than we ever have been to bring this glorious gospel to those who really need it. And I'm saying, uh, yesterday I was um, officiating at the funeral and um, I don't know if I say this every time but I've never seen such a lost group of people in all my life. You know, the, the, the funeral was a bit of a, a shambles because of certain aspects of it. And um, of course, when I do a funeral, I I spend some time talking about the, uh, the person, you know, the deceased, but I also spend some time talking about the Lord. And time, you know, because of uh, the circumstances, I was given just 10 minutes to do the old service, and I thought I'd cut out the Christian bit. And I looked at this congregation and I thought they wouldn't appreciate it anyway. And then I thought, no, I can't I can't do that. I can't do that. It's the Christian bit, that's the important bit. And I stood there in front of all these people, and I gotta be honest, most of them had already a few sheets to the wind. And I thought, oh, what sort of response are they going to get from these people? Like I come home and said to Pauline what I was thinking to do, and then I thought, no, I'll tell them about God. I'll tell them about Christ. I'll tell them there's hope. And I had a perfect reverence from them. Perfect reverence like I hadn't felt in a, a, a funeral congregation ever before. I preached the gospel and they sat and listened and gave me reverence, you know sort of respect and not reverence, respect and respected the words that I said I was so thrilled that I had uh, obeyed the spirit these people need Jesus and that was written all over that funeral yesterday they need Jesus everybody needs Jesus but these people especially need Jesus and they need you and I to be bold to say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, because it is the power of God to the salvation of those who believe. They need to hear the message that only we can bring, because we have rubbed shoulders with this unique person <coughs> called Paul, and we have obeyed the command to study, to show ourselves approved for his name's sake.